Two of the top commentators in compliance get together. They talk compliance, of course. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to the newest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network, Two Gurus Talk Compliance, where I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Christy Grant Hart, as we talk compliance and review some of the other top commentators in compliance as well. We will consider all things compliance, corporate ethics, ESG governance, and whatever else is on our minds or on the minds of other experts in our field. Two Gurus Talk Compliance was honored with a W3 Award for Excellence in Podcasting in 2023. In this edition of the Florida Man Games, we take a look at issues from the United Kingdom, Jess Staley, the trial of SBF, conflicts of interest, and domestic corruption. I know you'll enjoy this episode of Two Gurus Talk Compliance. Welcome to the Two Gurus Talk Compliance podcast with me, Christy Grant-Hart. I'm here with the one and only Tom Fox, and this week we're covering lawmakers and their beef with Costco. What a low blow in the cricket world can tell us about compliance, Sam Bankman-Fried's jury verdict, and the very first ever Florida Man Games. It's good stuff. But first, Tom, how's your week been? And what do you think is the most important development? Well, I would have to say the testimony of Donald Trump uh, is the most significant development. Um, it just goes to show he's a lying, scheming fraudster. So hopefully justice will take its course. Where do we want to start this week, Tom? I'll talk about someone else who is nefarious, but in a very different way. Jess Staley rears his ugly head once more. Uh, but this time uh, from the Financial Conduct Authority in the United Kingdom. Jess Staley was a banker at um, Goldman, excuse me, J.P. Morgan. And he developed a long-term relationship with a J.P. Morgan client named Jeffrey Epstein. and as hopefully everyone listening to this podcast knows who Jeffrey Epstein is or was, rather, their relationship apparently continued after he became a convicted uh, sex trafficker back in the first decade of this century. Uh, Jess Staley then moved across the pond and became the CEO at Barclays in the United Kingdom, where he engaged in uh, some other nefarious um, activities, which in were around trying to unmask a whistleblower who complained about one of his buddies. He was fined for that, I think a half a million pounds. Well, now the Financial Conduct Authority has banned him from holding senior management positions at the financial in the financial services industry in the United Kingdom and instituted a 2.2 um, million pound fine. Uh, this is uh, over long overdue. A remedy, but it drives home something we've unfortunately had to talk about over the past 18 months or so, Christy, which is CEOs behaving very, very badly. And here we had CEOs behaving very, very badly in a prior life, at a prior company. And that's why you have to do deep dive due diligence if you're going to put someone like this in charge of a major organization, be it a financial institution, rather be it McDonald's. In the United States with Steve Easterbrook, or you name the CEO behaving badly, it, it really put 
Uh, Barclays in a very difficult position, as did it put J.P. Morgan. Um, and Staley's conduct is just consistently bad across wherever he's worked. People don't wake up one day and say, I'm going to be a serial bad guy. Uh, they become a serial bad guy by doing different bad things. And he was certainly at the forefront of doing those types of things. And um, as our friend Candace Tal, uh, who has Infortal, uh, sa uh, often says, the cost of having a badly behaving CEO uh, can be anywhere between 10 to $30 million in reputational hit. And that's not even fines and penalties or other uh, ac actions against you. So um, it's just a, another nail in the sordid affair of Jess Staley. Obviously, Jeffrey Epstein continues to this day. There's even a hearing today, as we're recording, on the uh, settlement by J.P. Morgan with Epstein victims. So um, I, I'm, for one, I'm glad the FCA did this. I'm not sure this would happen in the United States, but kudos to the uh, Financial Conduct Authority for their actions. Um, I thought that the article that you pointed to with the information on this, which came from Compliance Week, was particularly interesting because at the end of it, it started to ask questions about consistency and handling CEO discipline really across different either industries or across different companies and how you do that in a consistent way that's appropriate. I think it's it's a difficult question to say what should the response be when these things happen that are so huge, but also they don't happen that frequently. And, and if you benchmark that, how do you deal with a CEO behaving badly and decide what the right response is? Well, the risk, you know, the risk or reward analysis is it may be a low risk, but it's going to be an incredibly high cost if you get it wrong. And so I've really come around. Candace has preached this as long as I've known her. And, and at first I thought, well, maybe we got a little X-Files going here. But it turns out she was right. She was right 15 years ago, and she's right now. If you're going to entrust someone to a multi-billion dollar organization, I don't mean to suggest they have to be squeaky clean, but if there's a history, that history needs to be thoroughly investigated. If they've had various relationships with people that worked for them, if they've had paramours on the payroll, if they've done things that, uh, you, I mean, I worked for an organization where I met my wife and entered a romantic relationship, we had to disclose that in writing. If they didn't disclose that in writing to the board of directors, things like that, all of those things add up. And it's never one thing. It's always a series of those things. And there's usually a trail of information, particularly in the age of social media. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually easier now, I think, than it ever was before to figure those things out because there is a trail of what people have said and thought, especially with high profile individuals. So. Yeah. Well, let's talk about a high profile company that is continuing down a path of bad seafood, if I had to describe it. You may remember that several years ago, Tom, there was a big investigation that was done by the Guardian newspaper in the UK into a um, fishing feed creating company that the fish feed went to shrimp and the shrimp went to Costco and there was a giant uproar about the whole thing. Well, apparently Costco has not yet figured this out. And so the first article I want to talk about comes from the Wall Street Journal. And it relates again to the U.S. bipartisan task force ramping up its criticism of companies that are allegedly offering products 
created from forced labor in China. This uh, particularly relates to the Xinjiang region, of course. And um, these lawmakers recently sent in a letter to Costco that they made public asking it to explain why it continues to sell seafood and security cameras that are allegedly tied to human rights abuses in that Xinjiang region and elsewhere. So Costco continues to sell this China-sourced seafood, which is different than the seafood that was being fed the other problematic seafood pieces. So the company is also selling security cameras produced with components from a company called Dawa. The letter from lawmakers alleges that Dawa has helped aid Chinese government oppression in Xinjiang, the home of the Uyghur people and other minority groups. Last year, the Federal Communications Commission banned the sale of new products made by Dawa, citing national security concerns. And other companies like Best Buy, Lowe's, and the Home Depot have all discontinued the sale of those products. So that is not a great look for Costco. Costco responded that it is looking into the letter and will respond, and I'm quoting, in due time. So for the record, I'm starting to really respect this group, right? This bipartisan group and their efforts to eradicate the stench of forced labor. I mean, we talked about it recently that they took on the National Basketball Association, right, for their clothing choices. And among others, they're currently looking at this Chinese seafood, even outside of the Xinjiang region, which to me is a huge development because there's been allegations that folks from that region are being forcibly moved outside the region to continue to produce safe seafood under these forced labor conditions. So I really think that this is interesting. Do you think that this congressional initiative is moving the needle for companies and that they need to respond? Absolutely. And I completely agree with your analysis. But I guess for me, Christy, this story brought up um, WTF with Costco. I mean, honestly, right? We've got a card, man. I'm like, oh, I don't like this. Or or my newest favorite phrase, what the French toast? Come on, guys. (laughs) Um, This is something you were on notice of before. It is highly um, in the public eye. It is going to hurt you reputationally. And if you have to spend extra time and money on this, you've got to spend extra time and money on this. People will not tolerate there's very few things all Americans agree on, and forced labor is one of them. And millennials agree on it, and my parents' generations agree agrees on it. And if you stock those kinds of products, they're not going to shop there. And a company that really typically does things better and more well, if I can use that word, weller, for their employees and human relations is Costco. And here they've just made a huge stumble, and they need to get 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 it right get it right i started with saying that there was a beef with costco which used me because we were actually talking about seafood but i couldn't come up with a way to say that in our intro to relating to seafood but come on guys you can do better gals folks you can do better than this let's let's see it so chrissy i'm a huge cricket fan i love the slow pace i love the deliberateness i love oh, man <laughs> four-hour games i remember not one of the first times I was in the UK, but one of the early times, probably in the 90s. And I went into, you know, their corner store. And of course, it was run by Pakistani and he had cricket on the radio. And he and I ended up just listening for 20 or 30 minutes to on the radio. And we just had a great time. Uh, but so that's the stage. But here we actually had, I thought, an important compliance lesson. 
And we had a World Cup match where apparently in the rules of cricket, you have to, when you go up to bat, uh, you have to be, I think, within two minutes, be ready to accept a pitch or ready to play ball, if I could cross sport reference there. And the batter's helmet strap broke when he went to fasten it. And for some reason, they couldn't get a new helmet out within the 122nd time frame. And so the manager of the other team called for him to be timed out and they would lose that bat, which is a very serious um, sanction in cricket. And the compliance lesson for me, Christy, was this. Yes, you have policies and procedures. Yes, you have rules. But those rules always take a second seat to safety. And the issue here was safety. And so can you have an internal control? Yes. Can you override that internal control? Yes. How, what's the basis of the override? A business basis or a safety reason documented, shown, and then implemented. And that to me, exactly what this was. Yeah, we've got a rule and that rule's there for a person. So people don't grandstand and take too much time and, and speed of game improves. But if safety is an issue, you can always override that. So to me, it was a lesson for compliance professionals. And, and the one I will the I add once was we had a bathroom uh, overflow in our office once. And we were under a DPA. We were under a monitor. And we could not bring in a third party until robust due diligence occurred on any third party. And they came to me and said, how do we get around this? I said, safety. This is a safety issue. And indeed, it is a safety emergency. And so we have the ability, properly documented with me writing up with a four-sentence paragraph on why I overrode the sacrosanct control that we couldn't bring in a third party onto our premises without appropriate level of due diligence. We got to get this fixed now. And so I thought it was a good lesson uh, for that. It, whether the other team's manager was gamesmanship of course it was uh and i don't i actually don't fault him but the uh, the referee or the umpire um should have said this is a safety issue and i will override this control of being ready to bat in 120 seconds to fix a safety issue so i actually thought it was a pretty good lesson small reminder for compliance professionals that we don't live in a va rules don't exist in a vacuum and if it's a safety issue, safety first. It's, it's so interesting, Tom. So I was in Australia doing a study abroad and went to a cricket game. And I have rarely been more bored. I, I sat there going, I understand why everyone drinks through this whole thing. But bless it, I'm glad you enjoy it. Lots of people do. And I must be very American because when I first read this story, I thought, well, what's the big deal? He, the manager said, hey, he timed out. He timed out. That's that's according to the policy and procedure. But I like the take that you had on this. I think it's I think it's a good one. And I think it is a good lesson. And I like your story, especially about that not putting due diligence on the plumber for three days, but actually just getting somebody in to fix it. That makes a lot of sense to me. Well, we did have one very major conviction in the legal world. You want to tell us about our ongoing friend, SBF? 
Yes, I do. But I'm also disappointed because now that this is done, what am I going to enjoy about, you know, the, the revelations? I swear. Okay. So we are talking again about Sam Bankman Freed or SBF as he's known to friends and people who listen to our podcast. So sadly, his trial is over. And even more sadly for him, he was found guilty on all seven counts that he was charged with. So top tip, it's never a good outcome when the jury takes less than four hours to deliberate. So especially that is especially true when the trial was months long. So that, that means that essentially every juror stated their name and then said, yeah, he totally did it. The FTX founder SBF was found guilty on Thursday of stealing from customers of his now bankrupt cryptocurrency exchange in one of the biggest financial frauds on record. The 31-year-old former Wunderkids fall from grace has been truly astonishing, going from magazine covers asking if he's the next Warren Buffett to what's likely to be a long-term stint in a very cold jail cell. So SBF and others borrowed money from XT, FTX depositors and lent it to associated companies, including Alameda, which was owned by FTX. So Alameda used the money to pay its lenders and to make loans to SBF and other executives who then in turn made speculative venture investments and just for fun, donated upwards of $100 million to U.S. political campaigns in a bid to promote positive cryptocurrency legislation. Somewhat surprisingly to anyone not watching the story with popcorn at the ready, SBF did take the stand in his own defense. And he stated that he did not steal anything, though he did admit to making some mistakes, one of which was, for instance, not formulating a risk management team or really having a compliance program at all. So thus endeth the unbelievable roller coaster ride that has been the SBF FTX roller coaster. And it has been a good one, Tom. What are your takeaways now that this whole thing has come to an end? Well, I started off our podcast by lampooning Trump. But there is a key lesson learned from both the Trump Organization civil trial ongoing in New York State and the SBF trial. And that key lesson is never, ever, 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 ever let the defendant testify. True. I think <laughs> yes. the SBF testimony was just an unmitigated disaster. He was sharp, crisp, and clipped on direct, but the minute they got him on cross, he completely fell apart. And the mean that the reason they did is they had the docs and they could put the document in front of him and said, well, you said you didn't remember this. How about this email where you said one, two, three, uh, do you remember it now? Were you lying then? Or are you lying now? Whatever it is of the standard lawyer tropes, he just got extricated, extricated and Trump, same thing happened to Trump. He just lied and lied and lied and lied. And got caught with the docs. So um, never put your lying, thieving defendant <laughs> on the stand. Maybe even if they're not lying, thieving, still don't put them on the stand. It's it's just not a good place to be. So maybe not. There we are. All right. What what about our uh, American bribery? That never happens. Go ahead, Tom. So um, anyone who's kind of followed me over the past few years knows I have followed this case because it is a U.S. domestic bribery case, and it involves the former Santa Clara sheriff, a, a woman named Lori Smith in Santa Clara County, California. And what she was accused of was selling permits for concealed carry guns in Santa Clara County. Uh, now, uh, 
apparently, unlike the great state of Texas, which says, ha, you don't need no stinking permit. Just carry your gun. Apparently, there's some places where civilization exists, and you have to have a permit to do that. And California is one of those. So you have to apply, and I'm not quite sure of the standards. Nevertheless, it is some sort of process. Well, this Milpitas gun shop owner, Mike Nichols, agreed to pay a bribe to former Sheriff Smith to get 12 uh, licenses. And he agreed to pay $90,000 and he paid $45,000 to her political action committee. And they were working on the second $45,000 when the investigation interrupted the scheme. What interests me is, number one, the specific um charge against Mike Nich Michael Nichols, uh, because typically payments to political action committees or other uh, other similar payments uh, are not illegal. And here they must have had a clear quid pro quo for that. But Christy, the, the other reason this interests me so much is um, the current head of Apple security, the former chief compliance officer, I believe, of Apple, was also charged in this same scheme several years ago. Now, his charges were dismissed, and he was alleged to have paid something. Uh, it was unclear whether it was a donation, whether it was in-kind donation of Apple watches, phones, computers to the Santa Clara County Sheriff's Office for four permits. Now, I want to emphasize that case was dismissed, but it shows that uh, even if you're a multinational company or multinational company with a billion-dollar business outside the United States, you better have a compliance program inside the United States because at least in Santa Clara County, they take bribery seriously. I'm telling you, Tom, the number of clients to this day that say things to me like, we don't have bribery risk, we're only in the United States. We don't have any trade sanctions risk. We only sell in the United States. We have no modern slavery risk. We're only in the United States. It is a complete misunderstanding of the legal environment and of the risk that happens. Yes, it's lower risk than the middle of Africa, but that's not zero. And not responding to it is simply not a good way of going about doing business. So thank you for bringing this one up again. I really think that it needs to be more, more apparent to people that this isn't just an overseas problem. It's a domestic problem as well. So I am looking forward to Professor Christie on this next one, because the UK <laughs> Parliament has enacted sweeping new fraud legislation aimed at AML and trade sanctions activities. Please educate us on this incredibly important and significant new UK law, Christie. I will do that back across the pond. So yes, Tom is referring to the fact that I was in fact an adjunct law professor at Delaware University for several years. And these kind of uh, geek out on new legislations are definitely things I enjoy. So the UK has this new anti-fraud legislation that is aimed at both money laundering and terrorist financing. So the new act is called the Economic Crime and Corporate Transparency Act 2023 or ECCT. And among other things, it allows the government to impose sanctions against individuals and entities allied with disfavored other governments. Go ahead and name some of those as, at your uh, own pace. 
Uh, significantly, the ECCT Act also mandates the creation of a new register of overseas entities to address the specific problem of foreign criminals utilizing property located in the UK to launder and conceal the source of monies derived from international criminal activity. As you know, I lived in London for nearly nine years, and we used to joke that, you know, it's the safest place in the world, just park funds and have an apartment there. And guess what? It's not going to be taken over by the country, probably. Then I was actually incredibly shocked by this. So independent research has shown that one in 10 UK organized limited partnerships act as front companies to conceal financial crimes at a global scale, which is pretty incredible. So most interestingly for our compliance officer friends is the new failure to prevent fraud offense. That that line may sound familiar. It is similar to our good friend failure to prevent bribery. That offense is from the UK Bribery Act. It now has a sister. So like the UK Bribery Act and the UK is also similar failure to prevent tax evasion legislation. This act includes a defense if a good compliance program exists to combat fraud and money laundering. Um, and so this one is called prevention procedures. Prevention procedures are specifically mean procedures designed to prevent persons associated with the company from committing fraud. So in either American or British English, that means a good compliance program can provide defensibility. So, Tom, this is the third in the line of British laws that criminalize bad acts such as bribery, tax evasion and fraud that have a defense available if the company has a good compliance program. What, what do you think of this structure? Do you think it's effective? Do you think America should take it on? What do you think of this new law? Well, the the reason there's a defense, I believe, is it's strict liability right. and uh, that the company will have liability if they don't have this defense. So it's really a trade-off, which we don't see in the FCPA. So I'm not sure that structure is better or not. It's different. We may have to get some more data on that. Obviously, there's now a presumption of a declination, at least in the FCPA world, if you self-disclose, disgorge profits, remediate, sensibly cooperate with the government. So I think we've got something uh, akin in place, if not the same. Um, Percy, I'm really interested that um, the United Kingdom has acted uh, to close these loopholes, and I applaud them for that. Obviously, the Bribery Act came into a force in 2010, and now the UK is moving in these other areas. Uh, typically in the US, we get these people through money laundering or other laws. So I think we've got something akin on the books, certainly on tax evasion. So going to be interesting to see. We, I think we have to also consider this in the context of two things. Number one, a major election upcoming in the United Kingdom and what party, I shouldn't say that, when the Labor Party takes control, what does all this mean? And what happens to the serious fraud office? Are they going to be rolled into the National Criminal, um, I can't remember, it's National Criminal something. Yeah, the enforcement uh, aren't there yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know if they're going to get rolled into that. Uh, given the uh, consternation uh, the UK serious fraud office was in under its prior administration. Maybe it can be cleaned up by this uh, former Met officer. <clears throat> so I think maybe those three things or two things might be tied to how this is enforced down the road. Well, it's an exciting development though. And I, I think, you know, we own two companies still in the UK and we were immediately sent all sorts of documentation requests. Can you send me an updated version of your passport? Can we get some more address information, et cetera? So companies are responding, at least the ones that are managing 
partnerships and uh, limited companies in the UK. So, so far, so good. And we rarely get to talk about sex. <laughs> we get to talk about sex on this podcast in a PG what? manner, of course. But this one is just as insane as it gets to me, Christy. And it happened in the great state of Texas. So we have to shout out to the great state of Texas, although the federal system can't put this one off on our state Republican government. But what we had here is really as bad as it gets in the uh, judicial realm, I think, Christy. We had a bankruptcy judge sleeping with his paramour, partner, girlfriend, friend, friend with benefits, whatever it may be, um, partnered a law firm. That law firm was in front of this court, not regularly, but with 26 cases where and uh, with her in front of the court, undisclosed to his court colleagues or, of course, opposing counsel. Now, this was a bankruptcy judge, so he's not an Article Three judge. But I um, can't remember how long this has gone on, five or six years, I think. $13 million in fees approved, $1 million in her fees approved. This is the most clear case conflict of interest I think I have ever seen. <clears throat> when this story broke, uh, within days, the judge resigned. So he is gone. And now the U U.S. trustee, the U.S. bankruptcy trustee, is seeking re um recoupment of all of the bankruptcy fees paid to the law firm. And the law firm is in the public record, and that's Jackson Walker. So this is really as bad a conflict of interest as you can ever have. I once tried a case in my opposition, opposing counsel had actually dated the judge uh, in a prior life, which was not disclosed to me, which might have influenced my decision to agree to her. But nevertheless, this one's just so bad. And, you know, we've got the little titillation on top of it. But I, I just can't believe this this happened, but it did. And so no one's going to come out of this looking good. No, definitely not. I mean, disclose your conflicts of interest, people. But one would assume that as a law firm partner, I'm going to assume that she had some skill and that she probably had earned some of those fees. But at that point, none of it looks like it's worth anything, right? I mean, so it's, Yes. Tell people about your conflicts. Recuse, you recuse yourself. Do the right thing and it will all go better for you, really. And, and if I could just say, if you remember the O.J. Simpson trial, the judge in that case excoriated for his judicial demeanor and rulings judge Lance Ito, his wife was police officer with the Los Angeles Police Department. And he disclosed that at the start of every trial. And he made that disclosure. Uh, he had a, in fact, he had a written disclosure he filed with both parties. So yes, you can have partner, friend, wife, a spouse on the other side, working for the other side. Um, but if you disclose and there's full transparency and everyone agrees, you can move forward. And and that struck me as, as a very sensible approach that Judge Ito made. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's leave that world and go over to the Wall Street Journal that likes to talk about work. And this one is called, Ever Thought Just Leave Me Alone to Do My Job? Then this article is for you. 
So I very much enjoyed that the lead quote in the article came from an in-house lawyer who summed up her feelings of being micromanaged, dealing with office gossip, constant interruptions, and dumb meetings with, quote, everybody needs to leave me alone, exclamation point, unquote. This advice is coming from the Wall Street Journal as people get frustrated with coming back into the office politics and the office gossip and all of the must-come-back-to-work stuff that you have to deal with when you're not at home. So what advice do they give? Well, some is a bit unrealistic for us compliance professionals. Um, the first advice is to choose the right size company for independence, which was described in the article as between 25 and 500 employees, which is according to them enough to get the work done, but not too many to cause bottlenecks. So those size companies don't tend to have a lot of compliance jobs. So somewhat better advice is to send your boss a weekly one pager with the status of your products projects, including how far you've gotten on your assignment, if your progress is on track, note what was done last week, describe the upcoming milestones and roadblocks you foresee, and at the bottom, link to past installments. The consultant being quoted here described the approach as managing your boss's anxiety, which I actually love because I sometimes do have that boss anxiety of where the heck are we on this project? <laughs> Why do I not know? Are you late? You're freaking me out. I mean, I'm just saying it happens sometimes over here at Smart Compliance. <laughs> And the article did point out, unfortunately, that if you are the boss, like me, no one is actually going to leave you alone because it is, in fact, part of the gig that you have to manage other people and deal with. It. So, all right, Tom, you manage yourself. How would you counsel your friends who are in-house professionals with nine hours of meetings scheduled and zero time to finish their actual work to be left alone properly? So I've worked for myself for nearly 15 years, and all I can say is my boss is a jerk. Uh, he's just incredible. But actually what this article brought up for me was a strategy. I had a, um, former CCO friend and colleague in Houston do he's retired now, but every day he would, this is so long ago. He had a daily planner on his desk for those who might remember what that is. He would jot a few notes down about what he did that day. And he did it for several reasons. One was if anyone wanted a status update, he could look at that quickly and give it to. Him. But there were other reasons he did it as well. He wanted to know, be able, he wanted to be able to show if a regulator came knocking, you know, what were you doing for these projects? And he would have just notes. Now, this was not formalized in the manner uh, that is suggested here with a weekly one pager. But then here's the kicker. Every year when he went in for his salary negotiations and they said, what have you done for us lately? Well, he had 365 <laughs> days of notes and he would reorganize them that he could present that as a business case for why he needed a raise or more resources or additional headcount. So by having that, and then that doesn't even get to our, you know, stressed out boss, <laughs> uh, who wants, wants a report. Uh, I one time did that for a business unit. I did the legal work for, uh, and I even put a third column, which was projects upcoming this week that I'm going to ask, you know, if the business unit needed to review my language by such, such a date for me to get a contract out that was on them. And I found once I did that, the business people, they completely responded to that. And they loved having that from a lawyer. So having that kind of structure can really give you lots of different benefits. It takes a little bit of time to do it, but 
I finally learned that if you do that sort of thing, and you can not only see where you've been, but maybe see where you're going to. All good advice. All good advice. So we spent a lot of time this week on the UK. And we have one more UK article to talk about. Yeah, this one, I'm not sure how I would characterize it, but it came to us from the Financial Times. And here we have the UK privacy watchdog, the Information Commissioner's Office, issuing an apology to the former, and let me emphasize, former chief of the bank, Nat West, Allison Rose, for suggesting she breached the law when she spoke to journalists about the closure of Nigel Farage's bank account. Now, for listeners, this happened, this was a huge imbroglio this summer where Nat West basically wanted to get rid of Nigel Farage as a customer. So they ginned up a reason that he wasn't high worth enough and we're going to send him to a sister company. And um, Allison Rose spoke to a journalist about the internal process they went through, <clears throat> including information that Nigel Farage uh, didn't meet the standards for the type of account he had. And uh, the ICO uh, basically said she broke the law when she did that. Well, within a day or two of that, she resigned to pursue other opportunities at a lot under a lot of pressure to do so and basically lost her job over this. And now we have the same agency that basically got her fired apologizing for this. Now, your question to me, I think, was too little, too late, Tom. Yes, probably. <laughs> but can you imagine a U.S. regulator apologizing publicly for an on-the-record statement that did something like this? I just I can't imagine a U.S. regulator doing it. So I have to give some kudos uh, to the ICO um, for doing this, but you're spot on. She lost her job over it. I mean, yeah, it did feel a little too little too late, but I do agree with you that better late than never if we're going to pick our cliches. So I suppose that's good, but we, we have to end um, with Florida. And if we're going to talk about Florida cliches, this is a pretty good one because it's actually going to make a contest out of such things. So our story is not this time about a specific Florida person. This actually came out of the respected folks at the Washington Post, and it is titled, which Florida man best embodies the state's spirit? A new contest will decide. So let's just say already I'm in. So a gentleman named Pete Melfi has a podcast dedicated to the wonders of the Florida man. One day recently, he was considering how he could share in the experience of being a Florida man without, you know, going to jail or being stabbed. So he created the first ever Florida man games. It was described by the Wall Street, the Washington Post as an athletic competition in which contests from across the state will contestants from across <laughs> across the state will compete in a bizarre array of challenges inspired by florida man stereotypes from beer belly florida sumo to weaponized pool noodle medul unquote okay i had to read that several times weaponized pool noodle mud duel just saying the event will be held in st augustine florida in february Based on ticket sales thus far, they expect between five and 10,000 people to attend, although one would hope that not everyone attending is, in fact, a Florida man. 
So Tom, I am in. What do you think? Can we do some field research? Should we do our podcast from the Florida games in February? I hear the weather is great that time of year. Are you in? What do you think? You know, I think a podcast from the Florida man games, we might have to retire after that because <laughs> I can't conceive of a higher honor or more greatness than the podcast live from the Florida man games. <laughs> It's going to be too good. All right. Well, keep keep listening to find out if that is in our future. I am Christy Grandhart. Thank you, Tom. And I'm Tom Fox. Thank you so much for listening. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Two Gurus Talk Compliance. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope you'll subscribe, rate, and review wherever great podcasts are listened to. We've linked to all of the stories in the show notes. So if you'd like more information, you can click through the links and uh, check out these stories. I hope you will join Christy and I again next time when Two Gurus Talk Compliance, a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.